Deal with us. Amen and amen. It has been said that First uh, Peter chapter 3, particularly the last few verses there, are some of the most difficult New Testament passages to understand and to interpret and to preach upon. Well, not only are we on the most difficult New Testament portion, tonight we'll be continuing in the most difficult New Testament book. And so it's really a big day here. I am relieved that after today, it's all plain sailing from here on in for the rest of my ministry because all the difficult ones are done today. Well, as we come to this portion this morning, we look at a people who are struggling, a people who are finding it difficult and hard and troublesome. Peter is writing here to a group of genuine believers who are displaced, they are discouraged, they are downcast. There are people who are isolated, they are lonely, but they're good plain folk. I think that's the best way to describe the the people to whom Peter is writing. They were good, plain, ordinary folk just trying to live for Christ. And they're finding it hard. And I know these saints are, they're gone now and they're with the Lord, but I couldn't help but feel for them this week. It's just been hard. It's just been hard for them. And the truth of the matter is, believers, and we know this, are not exempt from suffering. We know what it is to suffer in various and multiple ways. We can suffer with bad health. Let me rephrase that. We will And many of us are suffering because of ill health. We suffer relationally with people problems. We can suffer financially. We can suffer, well, by persecution. And it's that last one, which is a particular source of suffering, which the people to whom Peter are writing are going through are suffering persecution. People who are despising them, rejecting them, hating them just because They're the children of God. And so, this morning, we look at a portion where the Lord instructs these people on how to live for Christ in an unjust world. These people are encountering injustice. The Lord shows them, how do you live when there's so much injustice? Well, look with me at verse 17. And here we see, firstly, that we... Sorry, not verse 17. Hang on a second. Um, Verse 13. And here, we're simply shown the truth of being righteous. We ought to be righteous, even when the world is unjust towards us. Righteous means to be right living. Behaving correctly. Look at verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers... Of that which is good. Who will harm you? If you are followers of good. And the idea here really is. If you behave yourself well. If you behave yourself properly. In general. You should not find trouble. Now if you're someone who you know, excites trouble. Who invites difficulty. Well you will encounter difficulty. The verse is given a very plain. Simple command. You live right. You can expect to enjoy a life without trouble and difficulty. But remember that 
proverb. And I'm just going to turn to it here. It's in Proverbs chapter 10. And we read here the verse 24. The wicked, those who do excite trouble, those who are always being mischievous, it says, the fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him. The fear of the wicked shall come upon him. And what that means is, those who live unrighteously, those who do wrong and corruptly, they're always looking over their shoulder because they're scared that their wicked deeds might catch up on them. And for you and me, that's a good indication as to whether we're living righteously or unrighteously. Are we always looking over the shoulder, concerned? That person will get us in the end. That's an unrighteous lifestyle. Well, Peter says here, do right. You see, the child of God, we ought to, as is elsewhere put in the Bible, we ought to live above reproach. It is our duty, men and women, to be blameless, to be epistles of Christ, so that when the world see you, and when they observe you, they see Christ. That's the idea here. That's why the Lord has left us here. To be ambassadors and to be examples of Christ himself. And so can I give you a, a word here? Conscientious. I think that's a fair description of what Peter is saying to these people. Be conscientious. A conscientious Christian. As someone who's conscientious in whatever they put their hand to it. Someone who strives to do what they do as best they possibly can. And a conscientious Christian will live out the Christian life as best they possibly can. They carry out their duties. They show great care and they make a big effort in being godly and in being Christ-like. We're governed by conscience, governed by the will of God. We are those who show integrity. We're principled. We live by the word of God, not by the flesh. We don't do just what's easiest. We do what's right. Always remember that. A conscientious Christian will always fulfill this verse. They will do what's right, not what's easy. So, how do you live in an unjust world? Well, firstly, you tend to yourself. Be righteous. Live righteously. But can I also say, there are suffer, sometimes you will suffer for righteousness. Look at verse 14. Because secondly, we see that yes, we ought to be righteous, but bear in mind you may suffer for being righteous. Verse 14. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, that verse doesn't say that when ye suffer for righteousness' sake. It's if. So what doesn't happen to everybody? Okay, sometimes we're very quick uh, to stand up and say, well, I'm suffering because I'm being so godly. I'm suffering because I'm taking a good stand for Christ. That might not be the case at all. You might be hard to live with, you're twisted, might be awkward. Your, your life for Christ might be very much abrasive. So not everyone suffers for righteousness. But Peter says, but, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy. Are ye? That's not the next word you expect there, is it? If you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy. That's not the first word you might put in there if you were writing this portion of God's word. But the point being made here is just because you're righteous 
Just because you fulfill verse 33 doesn't mean you will never suffer at all because you will suffer still. You may not suffer for wrongdoing. Listen to me here and follow me through these uh, winding words that we might not suffer for wrongdoing because you do what's right. But you may suffer wrongly for doing what's right. Do you understand what I mean there? We might live rightly before God. And if you live right, you'll never suffer for doing wrong. Because you're not doing wrong. But if you're living right, you might suffer wrongly. You might endure hardships because people despise your godliness. That is a possibility. So don't be surprised that even though we're living righteously, that we still suffer. You see, the reality is, look at Job. Job was living righteously. His case was different, but he still suffered. It is a possibility that the saints to whom Peter was writing, they were like Job. They thought they were suffering because they were bad people. Because they were doing things that were wrong. And Peter assures them here, you're not suffering because you're doing wrong. You're actually suffering because you're doing right. So verse 14 is here to help them suffer righteously. Okay, Suffering for righteousness. And there's three etches which the word of God uses here. Happy, hope, and having a good conscience. So verse 14. But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are Ye. Now, like I said, that's not the first word you would put in there, but Peter is making the point by inspiration that's a happy person who suffers for righteousness' sake. Why? I tell you why. When we do good and people applaud you, that's your reward. But when you do good and people despise you, God himself will reward you. That's the key here. Isn't that the idea in Matthew 5? Just turn back to Matthew 5, because really, Peter is echoing what Christ himself said in Matthew 5. Let's go there. Matthew 5, verse 10. Let's say you're a husband. Let's say you're a wife. It's an unsaved relationship. You're behaving righteously and you're despised for it. Be encouraged here. Let's say you live in a housing development or in a workplace and you're behaving righteously but your people hate you. Well, listen. Verse 10. Blessed. Happy. Same word. Happy are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have reward. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. You see that? A great reward is stored up for those who are persecuted. So if it's a spouse, if it's a neighbor, if it's a work colleague, if it's government, whoever it is, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, be happy. For great be your reward. Every vile word that's said against you, 
Every blow that's directed at your reputation or at your physical body, know this, that great will be your reward for that. Peter is giving the people to whom he's writing, he's giving them steel to stand up for Christ even when everything's against him. Whether it is discouragement or whether it is being despised, Peter by inspiration is giving these people strength to stand for Christ. Know this, that when you suffer for righteousness, be happy. For great is your reward. Now go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Happy are those who suffer righteousness. But also go to verse 15. Verse 15 is a verse you will all be familiar with, I'm sure, but let's read it here. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. All right? Now, focus in verse 15 here for a minute. First of all, with the word hope there. You see, at verse 15, halfway down, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. And then we'll look at the verse, six, verse 16. Now that verse, well, we often think of that as, you know, we're going down to the outreach or you're in your workplace and we ought to have, you know, a good answer for everyone that asks about our faith, about our hope. And, and that is true, but in the strictest context here, Peter is speaking to a people who are being persecuted. They're being beaten. They're being despised. They're being ignored. And the context is that when those people who despise you, they watch you. And they reject you. They don't trade with you. They try to put you in bad positions. And they despise you. And then they say to you, why do you behave the way you do? Everyone hates you. But you still smile. We put you in prison. But you still talk about this Jesus Christ, your Savior. We persecute you, but you praise God. That's the context. And the verse is saying, in that situation, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Because when you're persecuted, when you're beaten, you're supposed to give up. You're supposed to be filled with despair. But a child of God, we ought to still glow. That's the idea. When you're fought against, glow with love for Christ and be able to speak about the hope that lies within you. You can say, listen, people can hate me and despise me, but Jesus Christ loves me. People may not trade with me. They might not want to give me business. But God has given me riches in heaven. I'm only here for a little while. And look at all that Christ has done for me. And what God has given me. That's the idea. You don't read verse 15. And come away with the sense that you have to go and study theology. Well, you read verse 15. And it's simply stating. Be ready to speak. And articulate your faith. You love the Lord because he first loved you. Like Joseph. The Lord has been good to me. How could I do any evil? All right? So, when we're persecuted, when we're struggling, we ought to be happy 
We ought to be able to give an answer for hope. And just look at the beginning of verse 15, because we sometimes miss the beginning of verse 15. We're focused on the second part of it, about giving an answer. Go to the beginning of verse 15. And here's a huge verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. That's how to behave. When people despise you, when others hate you, you sanctify the Lord. And what does sanctify mean? It means you set the Lord apart. It means you set him out alone as being separate, untouchable, as precious, as different. And you treat him accordingly. That when we're suffering persecution, we praise him. Like Paul and Silas in prison. They were locked up. And when things were difficult, they still sanctified the Lord. They were able to give an answer to their accusers. And they sang. And when they sang, what happened? The flipping jailer got saved. Because when we're in times of difficulty and persecution and hatred, that is an opportunity to shine the brightest. And it's true that when people are doing well and life's easy, it's easy to say that I'm a follower of Christ. But when you're suffering... And you still say, I love the Lord. Look at all he's done for me. What a testimony that is. And sometimes people misunderstand this. That when they're maybe sick or unwell and they're weak and they're filled with trouble. Oh, but I can't serve the Lord like someone who's healthy and strong and well. I argue night and day. That is not true. Those who are suffering have a magnificent testimony. Listen, there's a book in the Bible and it's all about a man who's suffering yet shining for Christ. Job. Men and women, when we are struggling, praise the Lord. We sanctify him by praising him. We sanctify him by trusting him and submitting to his providence. This is not where I would want to be. But in the providence of God, this is where I am, sick, sore, weak, persecuted, but I trust the Lord. He knows. Just keep doing righteously. And here's the thing. Do you see the more we do, verse 15, the more we sanctify the Lord, and the more we give answers of the hope that is within us. So the more we do, verse 15, it helps us to do verse 14. What does verse 14 say? Look at the end of it. The end of verse 14. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Don't fear man. Don't fear what people might do to you. And how do we do that? How do we get strong enough to do that? If we sanctify the Lord, if we're focused on how good the Lord is and what he's done for us, the higher we hold up God, the less we will fear the face. Don't you always see that? Some of the people who were most fearless were those who held God the highest. John Knox didn't fear the face of man, not because he was super brave, not because he was courageous, but because he had such a high view of God. He had a correct view of everything. Men and women were but pygmies. God is almighty. So, as we look at this idea here of suffering for righteousness' sake, yes, we ought to be happy. We ought to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. But also, verse 16, we ought to have a good conscience. A good conscience. You know, I was thinking about that. If you're persecuted, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, 
in the home, neighbours, workplace, government, wherever. It's very hard, you know. It's very hard to be bold for Christ when you've got a sore conscience. When your conscience is pricking you. When you know in your private or personal life you're doing things that are wrong, it's hard to be bold for Christ. That's why the devil's so active there. If the devil can make you blunder at home, or where no one else can see, just you and the Lord, and you know you feel Christ, and the next day, the door's wide open. If you witness someone, you can hardly get the words out. Because your conscience is so wrecked. There's nothing, nothing that throws cold water on our fire for Christ and a bad conscience. And Peter's saying to these people, you're living in an unjust world. Make sure you're happy when you suffer. Make sure you can answer for your hope and you make sure you have a good conscience before God. Always do what's right before God and before men. Now, living in an unjust world, we ought to first of all be righteous. Don't be surprised when you suffer for being righteous. But now, finally, look at Christ who suffered for the righteous. All right? Look at verse 18 here. Because now Peter gives an example of Christ. And he says to these people, listen, you ought to be righteous. You will suffer for righteousness. But remember Christ. He also suffered. Although he was righteous, although he was perfect, he suffered to save sinners. He suffered for other people's sins. Verse 18. For Christ, also hath one suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Let me just make some comments here then as we go with this verse. Here is the great way to encourage our souls. Christ suffered as well. Not because he was wrong. Christ came to suffer to save sinners. You see the way the verse begins with the word also? For Christ also, like you, Peter's saying to these people, like you, Christ also has suffered. You suffer, Christ knows what it is to suffer. Now, we have here the reason for Christ's suffering. Verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. He suffered for sins. Whose sins? Not his own. Because we know he was righteous, perfectly righteous. We know that Christ was completely innocent, but he died for somebody else's sin, the sins of those who trust in him. Keep this in mind, people. You see, whenever we sin, there is always a price for every single sin. There's always a price to be paid. When you get that into your head, Seriously, it changes your view and conduct. Because every time you do something wrong, every violation of the law of God, there's a price to be paid. Every single sin. Now think how long you've lived. Every sin is written down. God knows it. Not one is forgotten about. Everyone must come with its penalty. 
And what is the penalty of sin? The violation for breaking God's law, that penalty is death. The wages of every sin, not just big sins, not just murder, not just stealing, but every sin carries the penalty of death, every one of them. That is why Christ died for those He was paying the penalty. And that's what we mean by Christ being the Savior. Every sin has to be paid for. Either by Christ or by you being cast out into into hell forevermore. And the problem is you'll never ultimately pay for all sin. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. Solemn men and women, because we're all sinners. Everyone has sinned for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We all suffer, right? But Christ suffers, suffered for expiation. Let me explain that. Christ suffered for expiation. He was expiating your sin. The word expiation, it means to make good what was bad or behavior was bad or conduct was bad or account in heaven was bad but Christ died to make it good. Now you and I, you might suffer with bad health, you might suffer with bad relationships, you might suffer with bad whatever bad circumstances but we will never suffer for expiation. Only Christ did. I don't suffer so that my sins are erased. I don't suffer for someone else's sins to be erased. If I went and died on the cross, that wouldn't affect anybody's previous sins. It wouldn't erase my previous sins, it wouldn't erase yours. Only Christ died for expiation. I will suffer by trial, by temptation. I will suffer at times uh, for chastening, correction, for... uh, Sins that I do, there will be suffering consequences, but I never suffer to erase the debt in heaven. Only Christ can. Only Christ. And here's the thing. That gives us boldness. Because remember the context. Peter is writing to people who are persecuted and they're struggling. And what he says here, look with me again, verse 18. Remember, you believers, you know what it is to sin, but remember... Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. You see, he's the one that's just. To be just means that you're righteous. It means there's, um, you know, that there's, no, there's no fault, there's no guilt, you're innocent. He's just, but the word of God describes you and me as unjust. Are you see, if today, well, Christ describes you as being unjust because he died for you. And you might say today, I have broken God's law. I've sinned in a multitudes of ways. I'm an unjust person. Praise God, because Jesus Christ came to save the unjust. The verse could not be more clear. The just died to make you just, to make you righteous. We can't do it ourselves. He has accomplished that. The reason he died was for your sin. Keep that in mind. The purpose 
Well, look at it here. That ye, sorry, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring you to God. What that means is he's going to make peace between you and God. This is atonement, expiation. This is salvation. Christ died for the purpose of uniting a relationship between God and man. This is the only way of salvation. And so, dear child of God, remember this. Because there's nothing that hinders our service and our witness like feeling the guilt of sin. I did something years ago. I did something last week. Confess it. Give it and commit it to the Lord. And he forgives. Go with boldness. To live for Christ and speak. And people might say, oh, remember you. Remember you when you were a wee fellow, what you did. Remember last week what you did. You can say, you're dead all right. I blew it. But that's what salvation is. Christ forgives me. And I, by, my, by, by God's grace, I repent of my sin. And I will live for Christ as best I can with faults and failures. But we're not saying that people come to Christ because I'm good. We're saying come to Christ because you're bad and I'm bad, but he's good. We're all in the same boat here. You know my sin? I took it to Christ and he cured me. He can cure you of your sin as well. So, in the last couple of minutes here, let me take this section, which is described as being one of the most difficult in the whole of the New Testament to to work through. And there's a reason for that. All right. Um, Verse 19 talks about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. Well, what's that about? And then it talks about verse 21. It says, baptism does does both, uh, sorry, the figure we're on to even baptism uh, also now saves us. So, so, okay, so what what does this all mean? Well, just keep in mind the context. And we'll set it aside for one minute. The context is suffering people. Now, there's two views on that little section at the end here. Look at verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, some people look at that verse and they, they will come to the conclusion. And, and I understand there's good men hold both. I'm going to put two here, but some people will read that and they will say that when Christ died, he literally went into hell and he preached to the spirits that are in hell. Now, obviously, and I'll say this as well, obviously Christ didn't go and preach salvation to them. Obviously. Because, you know, you can't see of the demons. All right. So those who hold that view and have any sense uh, will not say that he preached the gospel. Rather, he declared that I am victorious. I have risen again from the dead. Okay? It was a declaration of his victory. The other view is very different. And think through with me here. Read verse 19 and 20 and now keep the context in mind. We're dealing here, we're trying to encourage a persecuted people. Verse 19 By which also he, that's Christ, went and preached on to the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. So how do you pull all that together? Go back to the very end of verse 18. Verse 18, it says, 
But being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, capital S. When Christ died, he was raised to life again by the Holy Spirit, capital S, that's God. The Spirit of God raised him. Now read verse 19. So, okay, so the Spirit of God raised him by which? By which Spirit? By the Spirit also he went. So Christ went in the purse of the Spirit and preached unto the spirit, small s, in prison. So the question is here, who are these spirits? It's Christ speaking through the Holy Ghost. Now, how does Christ speak through the Holy Ghost, by the way? Is that not what's happening this morning? When his word is being preached, Christ is speaking through his Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 20. Which sometimes were disobedient, so these are, sorry, I said sometimes. That's a different idea. Which sometime were disobedient. So these spirits in prison were at some time disobedient. When were disobedient? In the days of Noah. Okay? So here you have spirits. I would say people. All right? People who were disobedient in the days of Noah. When Noah was preparing the ark, there were people there who were disobedient. They wouldn't believe. They wouldn't come to faith in Christ. And God, through the Spirit, Christ through the Spirit, was speaking through Noah to those people. All right? And while the Spirit of God was speaking to those people in Noah's day, Noah suffered. Noah was getting tight. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He knew what it was to be isolated and despised. That, that ties in with the context. He knew what it was to live righteously and preach righteousness, yet be hated for it. Now those spirits in, in Noah's day, those people who were disobedient, who were wrong, well, they're now in prison. They're now in hell. When Peter was writing, they're now in prison. They're, they're damned. All right? So, so with that idea, that's the other view here, read the verses with me again. So verse 18 talks about the Spirit of God at the end. Verse 19, by which Spirit he went and preached unto the spirits that are now in prison. Not when the Spirit was preaching to them, but now they're in prison because they're damned. Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God weed in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by war. So there were few saved, yet Noah lived righteously. But he was saved. He, he was rewarded in the end. Isn't that encouraging there? Eight souls were saved. How many were in the ark? Were in the ark? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and three daughters. And this verse says that their souls were saved. Sometimes we look at Noah's family. <laughs> Boy, his farm left a lot to be desired. He had souls saved. Anyway, that was a great reward for him. I bet you Noah was glad he lived righteously. God gave him household salvation. That's some prize. But anyway, verse 21, really quickly. The, the like figure, thinking here about the ark, the like figure were on to even baptism, 
doth also now save us. But you see after the word us, there's not a full stop. Okay, there's a bracket. So to help us understand the verse, you see the bit in brackets? Let's just leave it to the side here for one moment. And let's read the rest of it. Let's read verse 21. The like figure we're on to even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the verse is not saying that baptism saves us. It says that the ark and baptism, they're both a symbol of being united to Christ. The word baptism means unity. All right? Noah and family, they were all in the ark. They were united. They're part of the ark. Wherever the ark goes, they went. As it bobbed up and down, they went with it. Baptism's the same. We're united in Christ. That's the idea here. So when united in Christ, we're saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he dealt with our sin. And by his resurrection, we enjoyed justification. When he rose from the dead, the work was truly finished and done, completed. Christ had died. He'd done all he had to do. And then, when he rose again, it was declared that his work has been accepted. We were made just in Christ. That's what the verse means. But look at verse 22. Remember the context. The people are suffering. Noah suffered and he was rewarded. You will suffer and you will be rewarded. Christ suffered, verse 22, and he was rewarded. For look at verse 22. Here's the man who was born in Bethlehem, God in flesh, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He's exalted. He's enjoying the rewards. Here's the man who lived righteously and he died. Because other people are being unrighteous, you and me, plus those who crucified him. But he entered in his reward. And you and me were like Christ. We're going to follow him. We too, like Noah, like Christ, like these people. We might suffer today, but be encouraged. You keep living righteously. Even when you suffer for being righteous, you keep doing what's right. And remember Christ, who suffered. It is now exalted. Men and women, we're only here for a little while. We're only here for a short time. But duty is upon us to live just in a very unjust world. And pray over that this week. Lord, help me to be righteous. Help me to be just in a very unrighteous and a very unjust world because that is what Christ deserves. People. We live for him. Let's take our hymn books, please. 103.